With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. everybody welcome to the show oh boy so we have some movement we have some movement on the reconciliation bill we're going to talk about the reconciliation bill oh i'm sorry not the reconciliation bill the bipartisan infrastructure bill we're going to talk about that um the eviction moratorium has come to a close it was not renewed there's a lot of moving parts on that. Uh, we're going to talk about that as well. There's uh, we got a busy show today. 
we got a very busy show. Um, later on, we'll talk a little bit about Kamala Harris, Tucker Carlson, crazy Christian pastors who are anti-vaccine and anti-mask. A lot of mansion in the show today, some Cori Bush. Um, final days of the Nina Turner race. A lot to say about that. Cornell West gave a barn burner of a speech that we're going to talk about. Um, so, all right, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And um, we're going to do that with the eviction moratorium and what's going on with that. Okay, here we go. So it begins, the eviction moratorium has expired, and millions and millions of people may get kicked out of their homes unless imminent action is taken. So I'm going to show you a little news clip here. I believe this is CBS. Um, After we watch this, I'll come back and give you more information on it. despite a federal ban. Today in Dallas, Anthony Upshaw and his 17-year-old son are being put out of their home. They're going to show up and kick me out. My kid up there doing his schoolwork. There's like three weeks of school left before the kids graduate. The Texas Supreme Court lifted the moratorium on evictions March 31st. The Dallas-Fort Worth area has the third most eviction filings in the country. We're going to put everybody up the first chance they've got. Upshaw lost his job early in the pandemic and has been struggling since. Constables placed his belongings in the front yard. Where are you going to go? We don't know yet. We haven't figured that part of it out yet. This could be the first signs of an expected tsunami of evictions as the nationwide moratorium is lifted. Up to 40 million Americans are at risk to lose their home. The moratorium was supposed to protect everybody until the end of June. Black families are twice as likely as whites to face eviction. The idea that, uh, you know, it's now okay to kick everybody out as if the virus is over with, it's not. His neighbor, Linda Bowie, is also being evicted. I'm worried, but I can't do nothing about it. I can't keep crying over it. She has 24 hours to leave. Where are you going to sleep tonight? In my son's car right there. You're prepared for that. Their landlord, Peter Sy, says his mortgage is still due even though rent is not being paid. So how much money is that that you're owed? Told them about twenty-five to twenty-eight thousand. How long have you been losing money? About seven, eight months already. It's like America going backwards. You know what I mean? For now, Anthony has temporarily moved into a motel while his son finishes school. So the stuff, it ain't even important. It's as long as my kids, me and my kids, good, we good. But Linda has not been as lucky. She's currently living in her car. Anthony and Linda are surviving the COVID pandemic, but are victims of the COVID economy. That um, is just the beginning. Just the beginning. So understand that there was a federal eviction moratorium. Now, there's also like states and cities and localities that have their own eviction moratoriums. Um, But there was a federal one. Now, there were also, as Jordan Sheridan of Status Coup has uh, showed us in great detail, there's also been loopholes to the eviction moratorium. And there are people who are still 
there were people who were still getting kicked out even when we had this nominal ban on kicking people out. Um, so now the eviction moratorium actually ran out on July 31st. And there was recently a Supreme Court case about this moratorium. And it's actually, you know, I've read contradictory things about the decision in the case. Some people seem to believe that the Supreme Court's position is uh, Congress would need to act in order to continue the eviction moratorium. So in other words, um, Biden himself can't act through executive action and the CDC on their own can't act with their executive authority. Um, You would need Congress to pass some sort of legislation that extends it and comes with clear terms and conditions. Uh, Some people believe that's the case. Others believe um, you actually can have Biden or the CDC act in in a limited capacity, at least, to continue the eviction moratorium. Now, um, Biden has effectively said a number of times that he's not going to extend the moratorium any further and that he's now putting the onus on Congress and Pelosi and other Democratic leaders in Congress are putting the onus on the CDC. So everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else and saying like, oh, this is on you. No, this is on you. No, this is on you. So ultimately what happened is July 31st came and went. Um, There was no further eviction moratorium. It wasn't extended extended by the CDC. It wasn't extended by Biden. It wasn't extended uh, by Congress. And now at the very least it has lapsed and there are going to be very, very dire consequences to that. Now, I want to give you a little bit more on the Supreme Court decision that came down on this in June. So apparently, in late June, the Supreme Court said, I love this, they said that um, in a vote of 5-4, by the way, the court left in place the nationwide moratorium on evictions issued by the CDC, um, and Brett Kavanaugh, who was the fifth and deciding vote, he wrote in an opinion that... uh, He doesn't want to end the eviction program only because it's set to expire on July 31st, quote, and because those few weeks will allow for additional and more orderly distribution of the funds that Congress appropriated to provide rental assistance to those in need uh, due to the pandemic. He added, however, that in his view, Congress would have to pass new and clearer legislation to extend the moratorium past July 31st. So do you understand what he's saying there? He's like, okay, look. Normally, I would say um, it's unconstitutional for the CDC to do this eviction moratorium or the Biden, Biden himself to do the eviction moratorium. I'm going to leave it in place for this month longer because this decision came down on June 29th. But he's like, the only reason I'm doing this is because, number one, there's billions of dollars that were allotted for this that haven't been spent. I'm giving them a month to spend that in a more orderly fashion and protect renters. And number two, I'm giving them a month so they can come up with uh, you know, more clear legislation and wording, which will continue to protect people who are about to be evicted. That's what he's saying. Now, in that month, there has been effectively no movement on spending the billions of dollars in the right way to protect renters. So that didn't happen. And also, there was no uh, piece of legislation from Congress to protect the renters further. So the things that he said he was uh, you know, freezing it for, or he was, you know, not immediately scrapping the, the protections for renters for, those things didn't even come to fruition. So, I, I mean, I'm sure if you're the Supreme Court and you're watching this unfold, you're like, 
how did you guys let this happen? Now, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, take responsibility and agency away from the Supreme Court, though, because I think they effectively made the wrong decision. I think that um, you should have, the president should have the capacity, the CDC should have the capacity, you shouldn't need an act of Congress in order to continue, uh, you know, this emergency provision effectively. This idea that during a pandemic, when people lost a job through no fault of their own, uh, and the pandemic is still raging, and you have all these people behind on their rent, I think the government should have the capacity to say, we're going to do an eviction moratorium, we're going to ban evictions. Um, So, I mean, it's just, it is an absolute disaster. Seven million Americans uh, are really at risk of being uh, evicted. So I think 70 million Americans are way behind on their rent. To put that in perspective for you, we have like, it depends on which numbers you believe, but it's about 500,000 homeless Americans right now. And again, we're talking about 7 million who are way behind on their rent. And by the way, there's still $46 billion in congressionally approved rental assistance that hasn't reached people who need that rental assistance. And The federal government is saying about that, that's not our fault. You have to look at the states and localities and how they're allotting that money. Now, some states are doing a decent job and helping people, and others, uh, you know, nobody even really knows where the money went. And so this thing is just a colossal mess. Now, some more information on this. Renters owe collectively $53 billion. $53 billion. Now, again, $46 billion is still uh, nominally allotted for helping these renters, but they're, you know, it, right now they're in the possession of different states and localities. We don't know where a lot of it is. Um, it's not getting to the people who need it. So you almost have the ability to wipe it all out, but the money hasn't been spent in the proper way. So here we are. We're sort of right back to square one. Um, and when it comes to the total number of Americans who are behind, it's up to 40 million Americans who are behind. So what we're looking at, if there's not action, is like a, a situation so dire, I don't know if we've ever seen anything like this since the Great Depression. If all these people or half of these people or even a quarter of these people get kicked out, oh, my goodness. I mean, this is just a systemic failure, the likes of which, again, we haven't seen since the Great Depression. Now, Representative Cory Bush and um, – some of the other Justice Democrats are sleeping on the, um, the steps of the Capitol. And what she's saying is, everybody, get your ass back here, and we need to immediately pass, uh, you know, a ban on evictions again. And um, you have all of the Congress people are standing by because they're waiting to be called back into D.C., even though they went on recess. They're waiting to be called back into D.C. to vote on the infrastructure bill. So, and we just got word that the bipartisan infrastructure bill, there's been an agreement. Um, the reconciliation one, there's still work to do. But on paper, there's an agreement on the bipartisan one. So everybody's on standby for 24 hours to get back to Washington, D.C. They have plans in place. And uh, Cori Bush is sleeping on the steps. I don't know what day we're on now, at least day three or four or something like that, where she's sleeping on the steps, you know, basically in solidarity with homeless people to say, we got we to gotta do something. We got to do something now. And she says, I'm not leaving until we do something on this. So massive credit to her for fighting on this issue. Um, it's really gross to see, you know, Nancy Pelosi pointing fingers at the CDC and Biden pointing fingers at Congress and everybody not doing anything. I don't think Democrats even understand 
just how much this could potentially hurt them in the midterms. You can't pretend like you're doing good things for the American people, and then, you know, you have protections against evictions lapse, and millions of people might end up getting evicted, and what, you think you're just going to weather that storm, or you're going to be able to effectively say, it wasn't me, blame somebody else, or somehow blame the Republicans, even though you guys have control of the White House, uh, the Senate, and the House of Representatives? It's not going to happen. So I don't even think they realize how damaging this would be, but needless to say, Cory Bush is right. Um, it looks like Biden is going with the interpretation of the Supreme Court's ruling that he can't do anything and the CDC can't do anything. So it does, you know, at least because he's not doing anything, it does seem like it has to go through Congress. So they better act and they better act now. And they better act before they do anything on that infrastructure bill, because this is more dire. This is as dire as it gets. And we'll see what ends up happening. But the fact it even got to this point is mind numbing. Absolutely mind numbing. I mean, under Trump, you even have the eviction moratorium under Trump because they knew, hey, peak of the pandemic, people can't pay it, people are way behind. I mean, I remember covering the polls where it was like 30% of the country that couldn't pay the bills, whether it was their mortgage or their, um, or their rent. If you have 30% of the country that can't pay it, you can't just not have protections for them, especially in a pandemic where all these people got laid off and it was no fault of their own. So what you just saw in this video, this is just the beginning unless they act right now and They don't seem to have the urgency that they need to have, which just goes to show you how Washington is not working for you in the way that they need to be working for you. But again, credit to Cori Bush for sleeping on the steps. Um, Credit to everybody who's fighting on this. And listen, AOC did an interview, I think it was on CNN, and she was honest about it. She was like, we can't in good faith blame Republicans for this. It's on us. It's on the Democrats. And, you know, um, we could have acted. We didn't act. And so the so-called moderate Democrats got in the way of this. So we better find a way to get it done. And Democratic leadership better find a way to get it done. And Cori Bush ain't stopping until they do something. So again, credit to Cori Bush. I've never seen anything like this. I mean, this is a scandal that's even bigger than 95% of the stuff we talked about on this show. And again, it's not um, being discussed in nearly the apocalyptic terms that it should be discussed in. So here we are. Keep you updated as to what happens, but right now it doesn't look good. Okay. Next. So Joe Manchin... Uh, went on CNN, and he has a message for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the reconciliation bill. Now, we just got word uh, yesterday that there has been a deal on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, They say they have 60 votes. They say they can get it through regular order. Usually what that means is the provisions are trash because you're giving the Republicans – the bill's at least half just what the Republicans want, maybe more if that's the case. So – They're doing cartwheels, um, and now Joe Manchin is pumping the brakes on the partisan reconciliation human infrastructure bill. Here's what he had to say. Can you guarantee to AOC that a reconciliation package will pass the Senate? Because her concern is that uh, this infrastructure bill might be bipartisan, but it's scaled back so much 
it's not as bold as it should be and what the country needs. Can you guarantee her that the reconciliation package will pass? I can't really guarantee anybody, you know. I have not guaranteed anybody on any of these pieces of legislation. We would like to do more. Yeah, you can do what you can pay for. This is paid for. Our infrastructure bill is all paid for. We don't have a debt that we're going to incur more debt and throwing on to it. And on the other, as far as the reconciliation goes, should be looked at the same. That's why I said we're going to get the budget uh, resolution. Let's start the process and then see where it goes. Uh, on that, we should just work in good faith and be honest with each other so no one's misled in any way, shape, or form. And there should be no quid pro quo. You do this, I'll do this. When it comes to big legislation, does it help the American people? How do you tell over 80% of the people, Democrats and Republicans, that we can't do an infrastructure bill, a traditional infrastructure? There's a lot of need out there for the human infrastructure, I understand. But some of these programs that they're going to be putting in place could be in perpetuity. And even though it only has a 10-year run on it, so it's been scored at 10 years at 3.5, it might have perpetuity. It would be $5 trillion or more. So we have to look at everything and be honest with ourselves. All right, so there's a lot there from the top. He said, uh, I can't guarantee anybody on any of these pieces of legislation. The fact of the matter is he's going to support the so-called bipartisan bill, um, and right now, he does not support the partisan reconciliation human infrastructure bill that has stuff like uh, universal pre-K, two years free community college, and things of that nature. Um, so he says, I can't guarantee anybody on any of these pieces of legislation, but the fact of the matter is his vote is there for one of those pieces of legislation and not the other. Now, again, I'm furious as I read the headlines on this stuff because everybody's doing this kabuki theater where they act like, uh, the work is done, the job is done, we have the deal on the bipartisan piece, but the House progressives are very clear about this. They say, don't come to us with this bipartisan bill unless you also pass the partisan reconciliation human infrastructure bill. And that's being ignored by many Democratic senators, that's being ignored by the media, and they're already doing car wheels in the streets over the bipartisan bill. Did you not hear us? Did you not hear the left when the left said, get that trash out of here unless you also pass the partisan reconciliation bill? They just act like nobody said that. And you know what? They're probably operating under the assumption like, bah, the left will fold anyway, so what does it matter? Let's pretend like the work is done on the, on the uh, bipartisan bill. All right, do that you know, at your own peril because the fact of the matter is this is one where at the very least, the left is drawing this hard line, and then they're going to use that hard line to actually have a seat at the table to negotiate in good faith for a very good uh, partisan reconciliation human infrastructure bill. And um, if that's the case, if we get a bill that's like $2 trillion or more, and you get some great provisions like universal pre-K and uh, two-year free community college, so on and so forth, well, then this strategy of playing hardball like Joe Manchin actually worked. So... Manchin's just, you know, he's trying to be cute here, like, well, I can't guarantee votes on any of this stuff. No, you can't guarantee a vote on the better bill. You effectively are guaranteeing a vote on the worst bill. And then what's his reasoning? Again, he's been saying, and I'll, I'll explain to you the trick that Joe Manchin is playing here, because it is a trick. Joe Manchin says, well, this bill is paid for. The bipartisan bill is paid for. So that's why I support it, because we're not doing anything irresponsible like adding to the debt and the deficit. What he's not telling you is, the partisan reconciliation bill, the better bill, was paid for as well. It was paid for. But Joe Manchin said, I don't like the way you pay for it. So in other words, 
they were going to raise taxes on the wealthy and raise corporate taxes to pay for the entire partisan bill. But Joe Manchin steps in and says, I don't want to raise taxes on the wealthy too much, and I don't want to raise taxes on corporations too much. So hold on. You say, in order to get your support, it has to be paid for. Then the left says, okay, here, we paid for it. And you say, but not like that. Well, then how do you want to pay for it? If you don't want to pay for it by raising taxes on the wealthy and on corporations, how do you want to pay for it? Do you want to raise taxes on the working class? Do you want regressive taxes? How do you want to pay for it? It seems like you're just using this as an excuse to not support the partisan bill. And that's exactly what's happening. Well, guess what then, Joe? You're not going to get your shitty partisan bill with your asset recycling and your privatization of our infrastructure. How do you like them apples? You got to fight. You got to fight the exact way that he's fighting. And you got to raise them. And you got to be willing to shoot the hostage. The other thing is, I love how he cites this as if it's a bad thing. He says, well, the partisan bill, some of the programs could be in perpetuity. Good. Social Security was in perpetuity. It's one of the most popular programs in American history. Medicare was in perpetuity. It's one of the most popular programs in American history. Turns out, when you have things in perpetuity, and they're good and they help the American people, they love it, and it makes you more popular, not less popular. Which gets to the other point, which is massively ironic, which he's like, some of these provisions are 80% support. And you have, you know, uh, the progressives in the House saying they're against it. Well, I can't believe that. Yeah, but some of the provisions of the partisan bill, in fact, probably almost all of the provisions, are also massively popular well over 50%, well over 60% for a lot of these things. And when it's provisions that help the American people, that help working class people that are that popular, you don't give a fuck about the popularity. Because then you trot out your dumb excuses like the deficit and the debt and whatever. So spare me. Oh, yeah, Joe Manchin citing polls on what's popular. You know what else is popular? A $15 minimum wage in West Virginia, and you didn't support it. So I don't want to hear polls talking about polls. If you want to talk about polls, okay, then implement that standard across the board, objectively, and say, I'll support the bipartisan bill because a lot of provisions are popular, but I'll also support the partisan bill because a lot of provisions are popular, if not more of the provisions are popular in the partisan bill. So I love that he, I love that he brings up numbers like that. I mean, that is infuriating because we've been telling you for the longest time, this stuff is popular. The polls are overwhelming on this stuff. And he just swaps it aside and says, I don't know, the debt, the deficit, something about taxes, whatever. Give me the shittier bill. I'll support that. The better bill, I'm not on, on board for that yet. Okay, well then, you're making your bed and you're going to sleep in it. And I would love nothing more than for the left to essentially break the back and the will of Joe Manchin on this. You think, see, again, what they think is, we'll get the bipartisan thing through, and that'll be that. By the way, his thread is this. He says, oh, maybe we don't need the House progressives. Maybe we'll get enough Republicans on this in the House. Maybe there'll be 15 Republicans that come along, or 20 Republicans that come along, or 100 Republicans who come along. We'll see. So what Joe Manchin wants to happen is he wants the shittier bill to pass, and he wants only the shittier bill to pass. He wants the bill that has asset recycling and privatization of large swaths of our infrastructure, he wants that to pass, and he doesn't want the better bill to pass. And he's letting you know that. And so just remember who Joe Manchin is. Just remember who he is, because he's telling you exactly who he is right here. And um, to the House progressives, I say this. Stand strong, take your position, and rep it, and um, don't be afraid to shoot the hostage. And also, if your position gets you a seat at the table, which it will, in the further negotiation on the partisan bill, then negotiate courageously. And like I said, I think a win would be a bill that's $2 trillion or more. Um, and obviously the, the provisions matter because the devil's in the details. 
you want to keep in the best provisions like the universal pre-K and the uh, two years free community college. And you want to make sure you have like the best provision stay in. And um, you also want to make sure that you don't have anything regressive that falls on the working class in terms of the pay force. So we, it, we can't comment too much on it now because we don't see the final uh, partisan reconciliation bill. But the fact that the left is drawing this hard line does guarantee them a seat at the table because they have the ability to kill the entire bill. And so stand strong, keep doing that, don't be afraid to shoot the hostage, and also negotiate courageously where I would say the red line should be, it's got to be $2 trillion or more. Don't give me this like $1.5 trillion or $1 trillion bill because then you didn't do a good job uh, negotiating it. And if it has to be the case that you walk away and you take the whole thing because you can't get Manchin and you can't get cinema and Biden can't get Manchin and Biden can't get cinema, then so be it. So be it. Because at least you will assert yourself and let everybody know you're a force to be reckoned with. And that's priceless, honestly. To have that recognition is priceless. And also remember, if they fuck you on this, and they might, you know, let's say you tank it because it's not good enough, and they still find a way to pass the bipartisan bill by getting Republican support, um, you can call a press conference after that and say this. There's not a single uh, piece of legislation that's going to pass the House from here on out, because we have enough votes to block anything from here on out. So we're done with doing anything in the House, unless and until Biden breaks out that executive order pen and legalizes marijuana and eliminates student loan debt. And it's not on me, it's on him. He's telling the majority of the American people he's against their beliefs. And they're supposed to be a representative democracy, so represent the people. We're standing up for the people. And uh, so in other words, if they fuck you, you can just raise the stakes and say, fine, you're not getting anything else through the rest of the time. Sorry, unless you do this. So you can throw your weight around, but you have to be strong. You have to band together. You have to say fuck you to the media when the media shits on you. You have to say fuck you to leadership when leadership shits on you. Got to be strong. So we'll see what happens moving forward. But um, Manchin is still trying to do Manchin shit and still trying to get everybody to fall in line and abide by his will. And the time is here and the time is now to fight back. Okay, next. So Cornell West and many others, including Bernie Sanders, are uh, campaigning for Nina Turner in Ohio's 11th district. She's up against Chantel Brown, who is a quintessential corporate Democratic insider who's a ladder-climbing careerist uh, who uses fake applause. Uh, So I could go on describing her in negative terms, but I'll bite my tongue here. Um, Cornell West delivered a barn burner of a speech for Nina, and I wanted to show you some of it. Campaign of profound love. And justice is what love looks like in public, just like tenderness is what love feels like in private. Nina Turner is a great wave in an ocean. She comes from a black people who have been chronically hated for 400 years, but exemplifies levels of love that make her a love warrior. She comes from a black folk who've been terrorized for 400 years, yet she's 
still exemplifies freedom for everybody. Oh, she comes from a people for 400 years that have been traumatized. And yet, she's a wounded healer. Yes, she's a joy spreader. Have you seen the smile on her face and the sparkle in her soul? That's Nina Simone. That's Gerald Levert. That's Aretha Franklin. That's Donna Hathaway. That's James Brown. That's Buck Louis Armstrong. That's what Mahalia Jackson. That's Fannie Lou Hamer. That's Ella Baker. That's her mama. That's her grandmama. That's who Nina Turner is. She represents the best of love, of freedom, of wounded healing, of joy spreading. And that is a moral and a spiritual achievement. That's not just about politics. And that's why we can say to some of our brothers and sisters who are part of the corporate wing of the Democratic Party with their milquetoast neoliberalism, we say we want vision, integrity. We want to focus on the least of these, the poor, the working class, everyday people. That's who Nina Turner is. Are you ready, Cleveland? Are you ready, Aquan? Let us watch. Let us march. Let us march. I love every part of that. <laughs> I think my favorite part is actually the end when he's walking out and he just pauses and he's like pointing to people like, like, yeah, I just freaked it. I know I just freaked it. I mean, you cannot get a bigger contrast between the two campaigns. This is what's going on uh, at Nina Turner events and at the Chantel Brown events, like I alluded to before, she's using fake applause. There's also like a dozen people in the crowd and it was at some random cookout and she shows up and gives a speech on like, the most sad stage I've ever seen. The like it was built two and a half minutes ago. And then they're using fake applause. I mean, the other thing is, and I think credit to the Daily po- Poster for this and the Intercepts, but they found there's a huge scandal um, that was largely ignored by corporate media. But you have Chantel Brown was basically funneling $17 million to um, her significant other or allies of her significant other in contracts. I mean, that's, that's nepotism, that's self-dealing, that's corruption, and now there's an ethics probe over it. And this is what people need to understand. Um, Nina Turner, so yes, she's this crusading outsider, but she also already was an elected official in Ohio. And when you already were an elected official in Ohio, um, the people of Ohio have already shown that you are electable and you are serious. And also when you have that name recognition and when you have the endorsements of other people who are already in positions of power, and she does, it brings a level of seriousness 
that perhaps isn't there when you get other outsider insurgent candidates. And so she really struck a phenomenal balance between being that crusading outsider and making sure that to get elected, you dot all the I's and cross all the T's and play the official game correctly. Because again, she has a lot of groups backing her. She has a a lot of elected officials who are well-known in Ohio backing her. Um, I mean, this is like the most professional outsider campaign I think I've seen. And, but everybody understand, everybody pump the brakes. Even given that, we do still have a race. So there was that internal poll that had Nina you know, like 30 or 40 points up at one point. Um, and then as time has gone by, all these other corporate behemoths came out of the woodworks like Hillary Clinton and endorsed Chantel Brown and others endorsed Chantel Brown. And um, they're running these vicious attack ads against her. And you do have, the gap has closed. But even in the internal polls of Chantel Brown, she's like five to 10 points down on Nina. Um, so there hasn't been a poll that I've seen where Nina is not up, but, you know, 30 or 40 point lead versus a five or 10 point lead, there's a big difference there. And so we're going to have to wait and see what happens. But I mean, she's done everything that she could do to this point. You know, there's genuine grassroots enthusiasm. Um, and the other point that I should bring up is that, oh my goodness, now you have Republicans who are trying to back Chantel Brown. Republicans, big money interests, they're dumping $250,000, a million dollars into Chantel Brown's campaign at the last minute. You have this uh, pro-Israeli group trying to back Chantel Brown and get her over the edge. Big oil interests are trying to get Chantel Brown over the edge. Why? Because both the corporate wing of the Democratic Party and Democratic leadership, but also Republicans understand you don't want Nina Turner in the House because not only is she correct on the issues, she also has that leadership quality that unfortunately many of the Justice Democrats who are there now don't have. So it would be you'd have a leader who's more organized than any of the other lefties who are there now, and she has that vision. Now, am I saying that if Nina gets elected, all of our problems are solved and we're going to win on all of our fights now? No, of course not. But it gives us a much better chance a much better chance to win on some of these fights and to have somebody who isn't afraid. One of the biggest problems is I think a lot of the lefties in Congress are afraid of the media shitting on them and hating them and Democratic leader, leadership shitting on them and hating them. Um, and frankly, they don't have the, the balls to, to lean into these fights. Nina does because she's already been hated on by the media relentlessly. She's already been hated on Democratic leadership relentlessly. She knows She knows who the real allies are and who the real enemies are. And so that's why you have big money interests desperately trying to prevent Nina from getting in there. So now you see the enthusiasm around the campaign. Now you see Cornell West. I mean, she's bringing the heat. Amazing barn burner of a speech talking about how she's a wounded healer and she's a love warrior and uh, no more milk toast neoliberalism with Nina. I love it, man. I love it. And so... um, if you happen to be in Ohio's 11th district, the election is this week. Let's deliver, guys. Let's deliver. And um, to have a real fighter in there would be something special. Okay. Next. 
Next, 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 next. We had a big story come out a few days ago about just how much Trump has the Republican establishment by the balls. This is really something. Take a look. Despite departing from office and being barred from the leading social media platforms, President Donald J. Trump was the Republican Party's most dominant fundraiser in the first half of 2021 and ended June with a war chest of more than $100 million, according to new federal campaign filings made this weekend. Mr. Trump raised far more money than any other Republican via WinRed, the party's main processing site for online donations, records show, and more than each of the three main fundraising arms of the Republican Party itself. His nearly $102 million in cash on hand was also more than each of the party's party committees. The next strongest online fundraiser among Republican politicians was Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who delivered the GOP response to President Biden's first address to Congress in spring, Mr. Scott raised $7.8 million online. So Trump over $100 million, Scott $7.8 million, and he's the second biggest fundraiser. Mr. Trump's advisors inaccurately announced on Saturday that his affiliated pol- political action committee committees raised nearly $82 million in the first six months of 2021. They continue here in the New York Times. That figure counted at least $23 million in transfers to his new political action committee, committees that had actually been raised last year in other Trump-affiliated accounts according to an analysis of federal filings. A spokesman for Trump did not immediately comment on the discrepancy other than to defend the operation's accounting. Also told WinRed's filings show that Trump had collected more than 56 million online into various accounts in the first six months of the year. The biggest share, 34.3 million, came into a shared account with the Republican National Committee, which is known as the Trump Make America Great Again Committee, Trump's political action committee is set to receive 75% of what went into the shared account, and the party received 25%. In addition, Trump raised more than $21 million online directly into two new Save America political action committees that he controls. So this is something. Homeboy is swimming in cash, dog. Swimming in cash. He's got all these packs set up, and he's got all this money that's coming in. And as they pointed out, there was some transferring of millions of dollars that's going on. Now, I don't know the specifics of that. I don't know the details of that. But that very well could be fishy, like we've covered in previous segments. Um, The way in which a lot of this is coming in is sketchy as hell. Like when he did the fundraising to stop the steal immediately after the election. And then there was fine print that basically said something along the lines of, you have to give over $1,000 or $5,000 or whatever the line is in order for any of the money to go towards actually stopping the steal and going towards those court cases. We covered recently he spent zero dollars on the Stop the Steal stuff and on the court cases. He spent zero, and he raised, I forget the exact number, was 70 million or some shit? I don't remember the exact numbers. But, so he's raising money in all these different ways, and some of it's being transferred uh, to, you know, a potential 2024 run. They say that the biggest fundraising day for him and for Win Red was when he gave his CPAC speech, and he just absolutely was shattering records. He is single-handedly outraising 
all of the Republican committees, which means he's single-handedly outraising the entire Republican Party. He raised over $100 million, and you have Tim Scott's in, number, in the second place with, like, just shy of $8 million. So what this means is they got a problem on their hands, dog. Looks like if he runs, he's a shoo-in. He would be a shoo-in. When you have this big of a money advantage, this big of a grassroots support advantage, it almost doesn't matter that he has a smaller coalition for a general election, which might be problematic for Republicans. Uh, they're so fired up and they're so loyal that, at least internally in the party, nobody else can hold a candle to him. So if he runs in 2024, right now he looks like a shoe-in because he's got the base support and he's got the institutional backing and the money backing and a decent amount of this. Now, don't get it twisted. He has no principle, you know, he has no principled objection to taking big money. Of course he takes big money all the fucking time, whether it's billionaires or corporations or whatever. But a lot of this money is also grassroots. His supporters who love him and can't get enough of him and they just roll out the red carpet for him. And so we have a behemoth on our hands. We have a juggernaut. And fact of the matter is, whatever they say publicly, you know damn well that Mike Pence, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, and many others behind the scenes are like, God damn it, now I have to wait longer to be the guy. Because they all want to be president. They all have giant egos. And the fact that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans didn't step up immediately after January 6th, and ban Trump from holding future office says everything. They didn't have to impeach him. There didn't have to be criminal charges. All it took was a handful of Republicans to step up and say, you know what? After the January 6th thing, he was talking out of both sides of his mouth and egging these people on, you're done, you can't run again for office. And there's no recourse for Trump. He would have been banned from future office. I mean, that. granted, he would have lashed out and went after the Republican Party and then tried to start you know, some third party and but he would have permanently fractured them if he did that, which would have been good for Democrats. But, you know, maybe that's actually why McConnell decided I got to sort of live with this cancer on his party. And make no mistake about it, McConnell does think Trump is a cancer on the party. So it's funny because even with failure after failure, he's in a stronger position than any other Republican by far, by far. And here we are. And we're going to get to a story in a little bit about how the Democrats, you know, you might look at this and say, okay, well, the guy already proved he lost, so he's a loser, and if he runs again, we're just going to repeat history. Well, it doesn't look good for the person who's the heir apparent on the Democratic side. The numbers are actually devastating on that front. So we'll have to wait and see, but it's really a race to the bottom in terms of the options. And I'm just astounded at the extent to which Trump still has a stranglehold on the entire Republican establishment. Um, they've made no, like, savvy chess moves in order to try to one-up him in, in any way. They're just at the whims of this maniac. And he's just out-fundraising them by a mile and a half. It really is astonishing to see. But if he runs, he's basically a shoe-in at this point. And, um, I mean, three years, four years is a long time. We'll see what happens, but... These numbers are truly astonishing. Okay. All right, let me do the Max Blumenthal story. 
Here we go. So Cori Bush is uh, currently sleeping on the steps of the Capitol. And the reason she's doing that is because the eviction moratorium ran out. Biden didn't lift a finger to change that and stop that. Um, the CDC didn't do it. Now, to be fair, the Supreme Court said, you know, they may not have the authority to do it on their own. So they're punting and saying it's on Congress. Nancy Pelosi is punting and saying, no, 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 it's actually still on the CDC. So here we are. Nobody's doing anything. And you have up to 40 million Americans, 40 million are behind on their rent. Uh, you know, the official number, if you believe it, is about 500,000 Americans who are homeless. 40 million are behind on their rent. Even if it, half of them, 20, 20 million, end up getting evicted. Look at the homelessness crisis. This is insane. So Cori Bush is sleeping on the, the steps of the Capitol to say, we've got to act now. We've got to extend this eviction moratorium. This is really not debatable. This is insane. This is a Great Depression-level crisis. Massive credit to her for fighting on this front. By the way, one of the reasons this is so personal to her is because it literally is personal to her. She was homeless at one point in her life. So um, she's fighting on this. You got a lot of people who went to go join Cori Bush and, and stand in solidarity with her, and including a bunch of activists are there. So Max Blumenthal went to, um, I think this was the first night or the second night, he was there with Cori Bush. And then look at this interesting exchange. And I heard, like, last night there was a lot less people. It's great to see so many more people. But I heard there was an intense debate about the role of the squad and why the squad didn't leverage its vote for the speaker for Medicare for all vote and why the squad – I mean, the margin so narrow in Congress, why the squad didn't um, you know, yes, because leverage its, 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 its right. vote on the stimulus to get a $15 minimum wage. What? No, no. So, first, one thing that was said last night, which is something that is very true, and I wish we would have talked about this, this was where your conversation was going, because we're talking about the rally for tonight, and I really would love to keep the conversation on what's happening. I feel like it's all related to health care and, and the... It and absolutely is, but this is the thing. What was said last night is that this bill, Medicare for All, is not, no, there's no person on the squad whose bill that is, that is... Bernie Sanders' bill in the Senate, it is Camilla Diaz-Hall's bill in the House. It is not our bill. We cannot make that bill come to the floor. There is nothing that we can do legally to get the bill to the floor. We have well, Pelosi could have brought the bill to the floor. We're good here. Thank you. What? Well, I'm sorry, man. Well, we're fine at this. Why can't you answer the question? We're here to talk about the eviction. But I feel like it's all about health care. Thank you. Well, really appreciate we moratorium don't get it twisted she's 100 percent doing the right thing she's fighting in the way that we want her to fight and others to fight so credit where it's due that's massively important 
Having said that, the answer on this issue, Medicare for all, is just not good. Basically what she's saying is this isn't our bill, so we can't do anything about it. But that, that means you just don't understand what the ask was. Because the ask was Pelosi needed the votes of the squad in order to remain speaker. So the idea was, hey, withhold your vote from Pelosi unless Pelosi agrees to bring the Medicare for All bill to the floor for a vote. Um, and they didn't do that. Now, is it the case that, like, there is literally no possible response to that, to the question from Max? No. In fact, I, we had these debates and these discussions very publicly at the time, and the counter position to what my position is and what many on the left were saying, the counter position is the reason we didn't do it is because we don't think it would help the cause of Medicare for all. We think it would hurt the cause of Medicare for all because we know that the bill isn't going to pass. We know we don't have the votes. It would be a big defeat for Medicare for all, and we think that would set us back. That, that effectively would have been the argument. You could have made that argument or you could have made the argument that we're wasting a lot of political capital to effectively get nothing done. So in other words, if you have the squad completely and utterly burn the bridge with Pelosi um, and you know, piss her off and then you don't get anything for it because Medicare for all doesn't become law, then in the long run, that's actually going to hurt more than it helps because then Pelosi will turn around and try to do retribution and revenge against the squad and have other ways of undermining them and hurting them and their priorities. So those are the arguments that you could have made, which even though I don't agree with those arguments, they're coherent and they're logically consistent. And you can make an argument for those positions. Whether or not you and I agree with it is irrelevant. Those arguments were, you're able to make those arguments. But she didn't make that argument. She basically said that it's not our bill, so we couldn't do anything about it, which just shows that she didn't really understand what the ask was. Um, again, the ask was, Pelosi needed your votes in order to be speaker. So what if you said, well, you're not going to get our vote unless you bring Medicare to, to, for all to the floor for a vote. Now, she may have heard, it's very possible Pelosi would have heard that and said, okay, fine, and then allowed the vote on it, and then it would have failed big time, and then Pelosi would have been like, see, why'd you even bother to do it? But that gets to the whole, the theory behind why we were advocating for the squad to do this is, in my opinion, based on my reading of history, it shows that, like, women's suffrage, for example, it was a good example of they voted on it three times before it became law of the land. And it failed a bunch of times. And at no point when it failed did that kill the issue. If anything, in the long run, it mobilized more people and brought them to the cause. And so the idea was, you know, if you have Congress run by Democrats, the better party, if they're slapping down um, – universal health care in the middle of a pandemic, then that'll mobilize more people and outrage more people and get more people interested in politics, get more people involved, you know, and people will see just how corrupt these people are, how corrupt the system is, how much money these representatives who were against it took from big pharma and the for-profit health insurance companies and how rotten and gross it all is. And that'll outrage people, get them more mobilized, get them more involved. And then this is like, you know, the shot across the bow for a long fight we're in maybe after a decade or 15 years or whatever, we can end up getting Medicare for all by sufficiently putting enough pressure on them, just like the Civil Rights Act, and by getting enough people who are ideologically aligned with us enough where they will respond to the pressure and vote for it. So, I mean, that, that really is the long game argument. And that argument appeals to me. I think that argument is true. I think a, a reading of history sort of bears that out. 
you, sometimes you have some short-term losses for some long-term wins. It fires more people up. It gets more people involved. And it's just, listen, they didn't, they didn't have a good answer. They didn't have a good response. And I, apparently there was somebody there the day before who was really arguing vociferously with members of the squad uh, on this issue. I, I think I do want people to be more nuanced and, and thoughtful in terms of what makes sense and what doesn't. And there's a lot of people who have just flat out declared Corey Bush and Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and others like, they're just our enemy now. That's, way, that's not nearly thoughtful enough or nuanced enough. There are plenty of areas where not only do they agree with us on the policy, they actually are approaching it the right way and they are fighting the right way. We're actually seeing it right now with the infrastructure bill, how they are willing to fight like Manchin on this particular front. Now, do I wish it happened sooner? Yes. Um, you know, but you got to credit where it's due. And oftentimes now they are doing the right thing. So you, people should be more nuanced about it and more thoughtful about it. Um, and don't like, don't threaten them. Don't, you know, people struggle with taking yes for an answer when they're given yes for an answer. And oftentimes now you see sometimes the squad will do the right thing. And then people are still like, no, because I don't like you because you didn't do the other thing I didn't like. I think that's dumb. And I think you're not being thoughtful enough if you act like that. And that's kind of an idiotic thing to do. Um, but having said that, Max here completely stumped her, and Max is totally right, and nothing about what Corey said was convincing. And I do think that these people with power should look in the mirror and sort of say, maybe our critics are right on this, on this particular front. And by the way, Max asked that question in a masterful way because he also preempted, he brought up, oh, you know, $15 minimum wage too, we wanted you to fight on that, and you didn't. And the reason why that's thoughtful of Max is because, remember the initial argument from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as to why they couldn't force the vote on Medicare for all, the initial argument was, we need to keep our powder dry for a fight we can actually win, like a $15 minimum wage. So on that, I'd be in favor of this strategy. But then the fight came up for $15 minimum wage, and they didn't fight like that. So you can't say, we got to keep our powder dry for the fight on $15 minimum wage, and then the fight on $15 minimum wage happens, and you don't use your gunpowder. You continue to keep it dry. You said you were going to use it, and you didn't use it. So Max was basically pointing out how well, you didn't really fight on Medicare for all, and you really fight on $15 minimum wage. Why? Like, give us a reason. And Corey's response was, <laughs> but listen, having said all that, I think Max's criticism is correct. Um, I don't, I hate her answer on this. You got to give credit to Corey on the eviction ban. She's literally sleeping on the floor of the, uh, excuse me, on the steps of the Capitol in order to try to bring attention to this and get Pelosi to call people back to Washington to vote on this. Um, so she's fighting on this front and getting headlines and she's doing the right thing. So credit on that and credit, at least as of right now on the infrastructure bill, where they said, listen, don't bring a bipartisan bill to us unless you're going to pass the partisan reconciliation bill. So they're saying, we'll take the whole shit if you don't do the right thing on the partisan human infrastructure bill. So on those two things, they're fighting and they're doing the right thing. And I hope they hold the line for the love of God, hold the line. Um, if they don't, well, then they'll be letting us down just as much as they did on uh, $15 minimum wage and on Medicare for all. But uh, so that's, that's what's going on right now. Again, credit on fighting the eviction, uh, fighting to extend the eviction moratorium and on the infrastructure bills. Credit on that front. When it comes to $15 minimum wage and Medicare for all, no credit and the critics are correct. Okay.
But is there any? Okay. Let me take a break. When we come back, I got more Manchin. He's butchering all hope on voting rights. And then we'll get to Kamala and Squeaky Ben Shapiro. Squeaky Benjamin is back. Stay right there, y'all. We'll be right back with all that and much more.
We are back, beach. All right, guys. Sorry for the longer break there. I was eating a chicken quesadilla. It was desperately needed. And it was absolutely delicious. Okay, so I am back. I am back. We are back in full effect. All right. Um, oh, all right. One more on Mansion. He butchered all hope on an important issue. And we're going to talk about it. Joe Manchin did a bunch of interviews over the weekend. Um, here's another portion of one where he's asked a, a good question on the voting rights bill for the People Act, and his answer is terrible. But is there any circumstance under which you could imagine allowing a carve-out for the – I know you oppose getting rid of the filibuster, but there there's some people in the more moderate – camp, like uh, Angus King of Maine, who's an independent, uh, who said that he's possibly willing to step back from the filibuster, his opposition to getting rid of the filibuster, just for voting rights, because he's so concerned and it becomes, it's become so partisan. Can you imagine ever doing that? Jake, I can't imagine a carve-out, because I was here in 2013, where it was called a carve-out. We're just going to do the cabinet for the president, and then it went into, we're going to do the judges for lifetime appointments for circuit and district. They were even going to do Supreme Court, but they didn't at that time. The Democrats were in control. 2017, Mitch McConnell's in control, comes right back in, and guess what? That carve-out worked to really carve us up pretty bad. Yeah. Then you got the Supreme Court. Okay? So there's no stopping it. And if we don't put this place back in order, you get rid of the filibuster, which makes us work together. And I've said this. The whole the, the, the brilliancy of our, of our founding fathers was this. Why in the world did they get two senators to Rhode Island and Delaware, at the time they were forming this great nation of ours, when they told New York and Pennsylvania and Ohio, hey, you only get two, too. Mm-hmm. It was basically to make us work together so that the big states wouldn't overrun the little states. It's a minority participation. No, at this point, it's not minority participation. It's minority tyranny. That's what it is. It is um, basically the, a reverse democracy. It's let's take the most unpopular position and make that the rule of law most of the time. That's what it is. And by the way, it's not just ideological. It's also that side ends up winning because of corruption, because who funds our politics? Billionaires and corporations. And so the politicians represent the billionaires and the corporations, and they don't represent the will of the people. And the will of the people and the will of corporations, it's almost always at odds. So I hate how he does this, this like, tries to put this high-minded intellectual veneer on anti-democracy. He tries to put this veneer on the more popular position virtually never winning. That's not something to be celebrated. That's something to be despised. And even, even his language, we need to, quote, put this place back in order. Put this place back in order by making it even more likely that the least popular position ends up winning. And then he says the filibuster makes us work together. The filibuster also makes it so that the least popular position ends up winning, that you give veto power to people who represent way more empty land than people. You allow Mitch McConnell to set the terms and and determine what's possible. So, I mean, it just shows he 
at his heart, he's fundamentally conservative in the sense that he doesn't want all that much to change. And this idea that he's laying out there that, you know, oh, my God, an exception is, is crazy because, you know, it happened once this time and it happened once that time. Um, there are already 160 exceptions to the filibuster. Part and parcel of having the filibuster is having a zillion exceptions to it. And so if you want to make an argument for, like, precedent, well, the precedent is already set that there are a million loopholes to the filibuster on purpose. So, yeah, why not add more loopholes? Why not do that? If the, you know, more often than not, it's the Republicans who are creating their own loopholes for the filibuster, why shouldn't the Democrats do the same thing? That would be in keeping with the precedent. And just so everybody understands, they make it seem like, oh, the filibuster was a genius idea that came from the founding. It wasn't. It was the first filibuster was in like the 1830s. So it's just not accurate to say that like, oh, this was built-in mechanism from the founders that they intended to be used all the time. Nonsense. Nonsense. And so now we're in a, a situation where Democrats can't get like anything through when on all the issues the people show that they're with the Democrats. I mean, that's just, it's a broken system fundamentally. And as Joe Biden said, nothing will fundamentally change under his presidency. But that's what it looks like. And he, just so we're clear, this isn't just on Joe Manchin. This is also on Joe Biden because he says he supports going back to the talking filibuster, but he doesn't because he never fought for it. He, never, he doesn't repeatedly and routinely talk about it and prod Democratic senators to get on board with that and fight for the reform and vote on it. He has, they haven't done that. So I don't even believe um, Biden when he says, I'm in favor of going back to the talking filibuster. So um, that's it, guys. Like the whole, his whole presidency is donezo unless you reform, eliminate filibuster, which they don't want to do, reform the filibuster back to the talking filibuster, which it looks like they don't want to do, add more cracks at reconciliation, which it looks like they don't want to do, or have create more loopholes to the filibuster, like on voting rights. And by the way, this issue, it's, uniquely important because if you don't do it on this issue, guess what happens? The Republicans gerrymander to the high heavens and now make it even harder for Democrats to win so that they have to win by millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of votes just to keep a slim majority that they'll do nothing with. So the system is broken, but it's broken in the opposite way than the one Joe Manchin wants you to think. You know, it's broken in the sense that the more popular position almost never wins because the Senate is, by its nature, an obstructive body. And uh, Manchin is very comfortable with that. With friends like this, who needs enemies? All right, next. Here we go. Kamala Harris, she's back in the news, and it's not looking pretty for her. Kamala Harris has become the most unpopular U.S. vice president six months into an administration since at least the 1970s, according to polls. Alarmed Democratic, uh, Democrat strategists are grappling with the vice president's floundering poll numbers, which show she is now underwater, meaning more Americans disapprove than approve of her job performance. The White House intends to deploy her only in certain areas to campaign ahead of next year's midterm congressional elections and will attempt to raise her profile by sending her on foreign trips in the coming months. The Disappointing first months of her term have also worried long-term strategists, many of whom had hoped she would run for president as early as the next election. Two recent polls 
both showed 46% of Americans approve of Ms. Harris, with 47% and 48% disapproving. I think this is an uh, economist YouGov poll. Um, they continue here. The only recent vice president to have similarly poor ratings after six months was Mike Pence, but he was not underwater. According to Gallup, uh, 42.1% approved of Mr. Pence's performance at that point, and 44.9% disapproved. Uh, the previous vice president, Mr. Biden, had an approval rating above 50% after six months. Before that, Dick Cheney and Al Gore were in the 60s at that same stage. Even Dan Quayle, the much-mocked vice president of George H.W. Bush, was nowhere, was nowhere not underwater. I think I'm supposed to say nowhere near underwater after six months. He had an approval rating of 43% and disapproval of just 22%, with 34% undecided. Mr. Bush himself was a popular vice president under Ronald Reagan, as was his predecessor, Walter Mondale, who became Jimmy Carter's vice president in 1976. So um, they also go on to explain, by the way, one of the more concerning numbers about Kamala is that only 36% of young people have a favorable view of her. And that is not good for a Democratic candidate, a potential Democratic candidate. So she's in trouble, and people are sort of flipping out, understandably, because right now, whether or not any of us like it, and I know that most of the viewers of this show don't like it, she is the heir apparent to the Biden throne, because politics, to a large extent, politics is name recognition. And so she will have name recognition more so than most other Democratic um, contenders in 2024, if she were to run, or in 2028. And um, with that more name recognition comes the default lead. I mean, we even saw it. She even was, you know, among the top candidates when she launched the last time in 2020. Granted, she was pretending to be like Bernie early on, and then the second she showed her true colors as a milquetoast corporate neoliberal, her numbers plummeted. Uh, she made her campaign all about banning Trump from Twitter, and then everybody started hating her. Um, but she will, yet again, in 2024, 2028, depending on what happens with Biden, she will be uh, one of the leaders. And now even Democratic strategists are like, if that's the case, we're fucked. Because she's not dynamic, she's not charismatic. Um, the more people see of her, the more they dislike her sort of similar to the Hillary Clinton dynamic. And they fear, they're not saying this part out loud, but I'll say this part out loud because this is what I fear. Yeah, if you have Trump in 2024 and he's got that rabid fan base, um, then the question becomes, is the anti-Trump sentiment still strong enough to basically make it so Americans pick any candidate but Trump? And that's a coin toss, man. I really don't know. If the Democratic candidate effectively stands for nothing, is coming off of a lackluster time as vice president, is not well-liked. I would be terrified of that scenario. I would be terrified. At least if you have Mike Pence versus Kamala Harris, it's like two robot insider corporatists versus each other. Um, but if you have Trump versus Kamala, oh, my God, I have no faith in Kamala's ability. Like, I think her and her staffers would overthink the shit out of everything would uh, be way too insular, and they could easily lose. They could easily lose. Now, having said that, it's also possible the opposite happens. If it were to be Trump versus Kamala, it is possible that anti-Trump sentiment is still strong enough where people are like, anybody but Trump, because they did pick half-dead Joe Biden over Donald Trump. So you never know. Like, I'm very humble in the sense that 
I, I understand <clears throat> forecasting is a very difficult thing, and you can only do it so far out, and we're way too far out to make any accurate predictions. But do I think these numbers mean something that Kamala is not popular at all? Yeah, I do. Do I think this means something mixed in with the fact that Trump's base didn't abandon him and he's outraising the entire Republican Party right now? Yeah, I do. So people are concerned, and I think they're right to be concerned. And, um, you know, what the Democratic establishment doesn't understand is that you need somebody who at least pretends to be more than just another politician. And that, even that vision is gone. Like Barack Obama, even though he was effectively, you know, a status quo manager and he was a tweaks around the edges kind of guy, um, he at least pretended to be more than that and to have vision. And that's what leads Democratic voters to fall in love with the candidate. And in the case of Kamala, it's like Biden skirted by on back to normal, barely. But Kamala, for Kamala, that message isn't going to be strong enough, and being just another politician is not strong enough, and she appears to be only capable of that. And the final point is, I will say some of this is by design, though, administration took like one of the more unpopular issues and just dumped it on Kamala's lap. And I think they did that strategically. I think Biden did that strategically to protect his own numbers where he says, Hey, the border. Cool. Kamala's responsible for all of that. Now I'm giving it all to her. And so this way now they don't attack Biden for border stuff. They attack Kamala for border stuff. And there was no winning on that front. You couldn't come up with policies that would appease everybody and make everybody happy. So I think it's sort of by design that this happened, but that doesn't mean the numbers aren't real. They're as real as a heart attack. Next. <clears throat> ben Shapiro, Squeaky Benjamin, is back in the news. He went on Fox News to talk about Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Now, Ben and Jerry's recently, as I'm sure all you guys know, we covered it on this show. Ben and Jerry's decided we are no longer going to sell our ice cream in the occupied territories. Um, they didn't say we're going to stop selling it in all of Israel. They said the illegally occupied territories were going to stop. Well, the right flipped out. Uh, the Israeli government flipped out. Ben is going to feed into this nonsense. Here he is. Um, what do you think about this Ben and Jerry situation? I know that in theory, you know, you've been against boycotts, but this time, what do you think? You know, the, the fact is that I was against boycotts maybe 10 years ago, and now because the left keeps renormalizing all of these institutions, turning all of these corporations into basically weapons of the woke, this means that everybody who doesn't want to see that happen, if you want to see corporations go back to neutral, we're going to have to establish some form of mutually assured destruction here where we say, listen, you guys go woke, you go broke. And, and if you want to go back to neutral, then we will start patronizing your product again. But the problem is that there's a vast asymmetry in which the left decides that they are going to weaponize corporations against people who disagree. And then the right says, well, you know, we're against boycotts. Well, that sort of asymmetry ends with the renormalization of every one of these corporations in favor of the left, and that has to stop, obviously. What do you think will happen in the, in the end on this Ben & Jerry's front? Uh, it seems like Unilever it has no incentive to continue a broader boycott of, of Israel. Um, I think that states are going to start using anti-discrimination laws uh, to, to crack down on Ben & Jerry's, and for folks who don't understand that, States do have the wherewithal to crack down on corporations that violate, for example, anti-discrimination laws with regard to racism that's also true for anti-Semitism. That is, that is why Ben & Jerry's is running a foul of the law in certain states. Uh, I think that Ben & Jerry's is unlikely to back down, but frankly, I think that Israel doesn't need Ben & Jerry's ice cream. I think there are plenty of other brands that yeah, can use. Yeah, there's plenty. 
Holy shit, that is amazing. There's so much to say about that. So um, I like how in the beginning they're like, Dana Preen is like, well, you know, you say you're against boycotts, and Ben's response is basically like, yeah, uh, in theory I was against boycotts, but now I'm not because I like this boycott. <laughs> Jesus Christ, this is amazing. So for those of you who don't know, Israel, um, like some foreign relations minister or something in Israel tweeted that, you know, the 30-plus states that have um, anti-BDS provisions on the laws on the books, that they should basically go after Ben and Jerry's. I don't know what they think is going to happen. Like, what do they think? Do they think Ben and Jerry are going to be locked up as a result of this or something? Um, or that they're going to be fined or whatever? I don't know what they think is going to happen, but clearly they want the book to be thrown at, at Ben and Jerry's. Um, and so Ben Shapiro is saying, I know I argue all the time against boycotts uh, because oftentimes the left are the ones doing these boycotts, but now that it's the right doing it and going after somebody, well, now I'm in favor of it. And his reason, I, I mean, his reasoning is basically, well, when the left does it, it's bad, but when we do it, it's good. So in other words, that Mr. Like, Mr. Logical Consistency and I have principles is like, I'm not logically consistent, and I don't have principles, and that's okay, because on this issue, I feel strongly about it. So when he feels strongly about an issue, yeah, boycott, use whatever tactics, even if I view them as um, not legit tactics, but when the left does it, oh, my God, he'll go on an hour-long rant about how this is tyranny and this is terrible and they're hypocrites and all that stuff. Um, now, the other point is uh, Ben and others are pretending like Ben and Jerry's doing this, like Ben and Jerry's are, are doing cancel culture or something. They're not doing anything remotely resembling cancel culture. Ben and Jerry's decided to do something that they themselves want to do because they think it's the moral thing and the ethical thing to do. They're not canceling anybody else or demanding that anybody follows along with them. They're saying, hey, man, we don't want our ice cream to be sold in illegally occupied territories where Palestinians are getting their homes bulldozed on a regular basis and Israel continues to steal land. I mean, that's effectively the same thing as if Ben and Jerry's comes out, and I don't know if they sell Ben and Jerry's in Saudi Arabia, for example, but if they came out and said, well, we don't want to sell it to the Saudi government because the Saudi government uh, beheads people in the public square for witchcraft and apostasy and sorcery and whatever the fuck, drunk smuggling. My guess is, uh, you know, if Ben and Jerry's said that, Ben Shapiro would not say this is Ben and Jerry's doing cancel culture. He would say they don't want to sell ice cream to murderous dictators. They don't want to sell ice cream to settler colonialist illegal occupiers. That's their decision. They're not telling anybody else to do anything. You know, this isn't, this isn't remotely resembling cancel culture. This is them following their own conscience. Now, you don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. But it's certainly not woke or cancel. This, this is their trick now. The right loves to say anything they don't like is just wokeness. Anything they don't like is just cancel culture. And it's like, no, this is just somebody doing something moral on their own. And then the best part is he talks about how, you know, there's these anti-discrimination protections for Israel, just like there's, uh, you know, anti-discrimination protections on race, uh, protections on race, for example. Imagine believing that this would, could be invoked here. They're not saying we don't want to sell Ben and Jerry's ice cream to Jews. We don't want to sell Ben and Jerry's ice cream to people of color or trans people. That would probably be a violation of anti-discrimination protections. They're saying... We don't want to sell it in the illegally occupied territories 
they're not even saying we don't want to sell it in all of Israel. They're just saying in the illegally occupied territories, where it's very clear there's a violation of international law going on, and it's continuing. And Ben, what's he doing? He's immediately making the comparison and invoking this idea that it's bigoted. What they're doing is bigoted. What they're doing is xenophobic. What they're doing is, you know, akin to racism, very similar to racism. What they're doing is uh, an unfair form of discrimination against an oppressed people's, namely in his mind, the illegal settler colonial people are the oppressed people. I mean, I said it, said it before, I'll say it again, Glenn Greenwald makes this point all the time. It's supremely ironic that people like Dave Rubin and Ben Shapiro and others on the right, they always claim their whole thing is like, we're against cancel culture. And they engage in it, or excuse me, not cancel culture. Well, they say they're against that too, but we're against identity politics. And then they immediately engage in it when it comes to Israel all the time, nonstop. And this is just a great example of it right here. All of a sudden, Ben is the biggest identitarian on the planet. Ben, you know, is huge on using the same sort of uh, rules and the same logic that, you know, somebody who's, who believes in identity politics on the left would use. He starts invoking all those exact same arguments when it comes to um, Israel and when it comes to being Jewish. And, I mean, the hypocrisy is just overwhelming. He's just dripping in hypocrisy. So he's the one who's triggered. He's the one who's a snowflake. He's the one who's engaging in cancel culture. He's the one who's using identity politics. He's the one who's actually being, like, woke. You know? What do you think it is when you're saying we should officially punish a business for doing what they want to do and not – this has nothing to do with anybody else? You know, we should punish them because they're doing what they view as a moral stand let's do a boycott. Let's use the power of the law to go against them. By the way, Ben and Jerry, they have a a, a First Amendment right to do what they're doing here in the U.S. They're legally allowed to do this. And by the way, those anti-BDF laws, they've been three or four court cases have said they're all unconstitutional because they are, because you're punishing people directly for political speech. And he doesn't bring any of that up. That's not his position. Of course, his position is this is bigotry. This is xenophobia. Somehow Ben and Jerry are the, one do, the ones doing cancel culture and wokeness. No, Ben, uh, I think that's you. I think you're the one doing it. And I think everybody can see how big of a hypocrite you are. Um, it's sort of amazing. He's saying, let's use the exact same tactics of the people who I say I despise and who I say are hypocrites and who I say have no standards. Let me use those exact same tactics because now I'm on the other side of the issue. Don't tell me this is some sort of high-minded intellectual. This is a complete partisan hack. All right, next. Oh, let me find the name of this pastor because I want to make sure everybody knows. Everybody's got to know who this person is. Everybody's got to know. Here we go. This is really something special. So there's a pastor by the name of Greg Locke, um, and he is from the Global Vision Bible Church in Tennessee. 
and he is as right-wing as it gets and as big of a conspiracy theorist as it gets, he is going to absolutely scream at his uh, congregants, I believe that's the right word, that uh, they shouldn't get vaccinated, they shouldn't wear a mask, and he throws in a little bit of QAnon sprinkles on top just to hit us with all the greatest hits. about there's this guy who kind of 
overweight guy, heavy set guy, and he dragged his, his feet getting the vaccine. He didn't end up getting the vaccine. He was sort of on the fence about whether or not to get it. And then right before he took his last breath, he said in the hospital, I should have just got that fucking vaccine. I should have just gotten it. And now he's got a bunch of kids, little kids, that are going to grow up without a father because he dragged his feet on it. Now, understand something. This is, there's actually new numbers that just came out yesterday. I'll see if I could pull them up uh, as I'm chatting with you. I saw them in Axios. But now we're talking about a, um, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. That's what's happening. We have a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So even though we have a situation where vaccinated people can spread the virus to others in what's called breakthrough cases, number one, those numbers are low. Um, number two, the overwhelming majority of the time, if you've been vaccinated and you're spreading the virus to other people, you are asymptomatic, so you're not really showing any symptoms at all, or you basically have a case of the sniffles or super, super mild symptoms. So the vaccine is kicking the ass of COVID, but you're still able to spread it to other people. So that's the new thing that we've learned is that, you know, there are these breakthrough cases where vaccinated people could spread it to others, but a lot of people are misreading these headlines and, and this fact as if it's the case that the vaccine just doesn't work. No, the vaccine is doing its job to protect you, but it's still the case that in some cases, small percentage, you can still pass it to others even if you've been vaccinated. And um, I'm looking for the Axios headline. Here it is. Okay, boom. Here we go. Of the 164 million vaccinated Americans, less than 0.1% have been infected with the coronavirus, less than 0.1%, and 0.001% have died. That's amazing. 0.004% have been hospitalized. So in other words, if you get the vaccine, the overwhelming majority of the time you're going to be totally fine, and it, and it saves you and it helps you. This is now, now the people who are getting severe illness, who are hospitalized, who are dying, it's all a pandemic of the unvaccinated now. So to hear this guy say this, Delta variant was nonsense then, it's nonsense now. If people listen to this, granted, I don't know how many people follow this guy. I'd be surprised if it's a lot. But if you hear this in, in right-wing, um, you know, pulpits throughout the country, oh, that's not good. A lot of people are going to get sick and maybe die as a result of it. And then the other part that just drives me crazy is he says the Delta variant was nonsense then, it's nonsense now. Then he says you will not wear masks in this church. So not only is he saying, I'm not going to wear a mask to protect myself, and we know he's unvaccinated as well. He's saying, you will not wear a mask in this church. So this is like, now I'm going to impose my dumb beliefs on you. Well, what happened to freedom? I thought you guys said you believe in freedom and you believe in choice when it comes to this issue of vaccinations and how to handle the virus. Turns out you don't. You want to be tyrannical and you want to be dictatorial on the wrong side of it. On the wrong side. Again, quote, you will not wear masks in this church. So, I mean, listen, I think it makes sense to wear the masks because if you're not vaccinated, it can maybe save you and help you. If you are vaccinated, it will prevent you from spreading it to others indoors. Um, so it's dumb, but if you decide for just yourself, I'm not vaccinated and I want to wear the mask, then you're taking your risk with your own life, so it's really on you. But if you're telling other people now, you will not wear masks in this church, well, now you're just spreading these dangerous ideas to everybody else. And he talks about not getting vaccinated. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming that these vaccines are, are working. 
I mean, even with this Delta variant, 97% um, protection. So you will not, it's super unlikely, 97% successful against severe illness and hospitalization and death. So that's colossal protection, colossal protection. I mean, these people are now, not only are they hurting themselves, they're hurting others who might agree with them politically. And then finally, Joe Biden's days are numbered, he said. Now, first I heard that, I'm like, is he saying Biden's going to die soon? But no, he, he went on to say the election was fraudulent. We've got so much proof that only crack-smoking, demon-possessed liberals or leftists wouldn't acknowledge it. There were over 60 court cases on this stuff, and Trump lost virtually every single one. So who's denying the evidence? Who's denying the proof? We're in fucking August, for the love of God. But they really think this is, what, attempt number seven or eight, where they say Trump's going to be reinstated. Not happening, dog. Not happening. He says, proof. Proof from who? The My Pillow guy who's pulling stuff out of his asshole? And they really believe it. So look at all the things. Matt, not only is he anti-vaccine, he's also anti-mask, and he also thinks Donald Trump is going to get back in office. So I come full circle to my original point. Guys, what percentage of the population is thinking like this? Is it 20% of the public that listens to this? Two out of every 10 people listen to this, and they're like, this guy's keeping it real? That's a terrible thought. Seems like we're growing the number of TFGs by the day. This is, uh, this is disturbing. This is disturbing. I mean, it doesn't matter what I say to people who are this set in their beliefs, but for the love of God, try to be objective. Try to follow the evidence. Um, and just don't, don't get these partisan Trumpist brain worms because you're just, you're living on another planet if you believe any of this stuff, any of it at all. And it's probably not a coincidence that this stemmed from fundamentalist religious thinking, that this is the kind of person who we're dealing with. And you see the other logical consequences of having fundamentalist religious thinking. You end up thinking vaccines are nonsense, masks are nonsense, and uh, Trump is going to be reinstated, even though Biden's already been president for a long time. Okay. Okay, let's keep going. So this story really, really surprised me. Let me share it with everybody. The Guardian is reporting that Sky News Australia banned from YouTube for seven days over COVID misinformation. Digital giant issues strike after channel posted videos denying the existence of the disease and encouraging people to use discredited medication. Now, I don't know which medication this dude was pushing for, but funny enough, his name was, what was it? I think it was Alan Jones. This 80-year-old guy who works for Sky News Australia, which is funny because his name sounds similar to Alex Jones, who was the original person who was banned from virtually all the social media platforms. Um, I'm surprised by this, and I'm surprised because as a general rule, what you've seen is YouTube targets the smaller independent media, new media uh, channels, and they'll maybe suspend them or demonetize them or derank them. But to this point, I haven't seen them really go after any bigger um, broadcaster. And now they did. Now they went after Sky News Australia for this stuff. So, I mean, listen, there's a lot of stuff to say about this. The first point is obvious. I'm sure that whatever this shit is this guy was saying, if he was downplaying the existence of COVID and pumping bogus cures, I'm sure that YouTube is correct on the merits of the claims that, like, this stuff is dangerous misinformation. Um, But, of course, 
I think this is insane that they get banned, even though it's just for seven days. Because, guys, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention, but the, the science and the information and the data has evolved so much over time when dealing with this pandemic that virtually anything you said in the first, like, four or five months of the pandemic turned out to be factually wrong. Should all of those videos be banned now? Should they have been banned in real time? Should you just not have been allowed to talk about it because the science was sort of unsettled and still in many ways is unsettled? It's just a terrible precedent. Now, again, I'm shocked that they actually went after a big person, a big outlet, big broadcaster for the first time ever. But, um, I mean, this is what's next. What's next? If you really were to crack down on misinformation objectively and across the board, so much shit on CNN would have to get pulled down and they would have to get suspensions. And Fox News, they would have to pull it down and get suspensions. And uh, once you open this door, there's no closing this door. And you can't set up some ministry of truth to determine what's allowed and what's not allowed, because guess what? The ministry of truth is going to fuck stuff up in their own respect and in their own right. Um, And you can't have, like, perfect objectivity and somehow get everything right every step of the way. Dr. Fauci said a number of things that were insanely off base. Early on, he was downplaying needing masks. I mean, that's ridiculous. And he lied about it and said it, uh, they don't work when the reality is he later admitted, no, we just wanted to save them for the frontline workers because we were afraid that there was going to be a shortage. So should he get banned? If you were to actually take, go after people spreading falsehoods on COVID, at some point, everybody would be pulled down. Everybody who talks about the issue would be pulled down because you could nitpick every little thing. And again, who will fact check the fact checkers? Who will watch the watchmen? There's no way to do this the right way. And it's funny how at the government level, we all understand they should not be in the business at all of fact-checking people or censoring or deplatforming. But somehow when it comes to corporate behemoths, we think they should do that thing. You think Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, who has terrible judgment, but somehow he should determine or he should set up a board that determines who can and cannot say whatever, and Jack of Twitter should do the same thing. If you're against censorship at the government level, of course it would make sense that a corporate bureaucracy also shouldn't have the ability and the authority to ban people. That's not saying you're allowed to harass people or dox people or threaten people. Those things are even against the law. Um, but to just casually, nonchalantly ban people, and now it seems like they're spreading more and more and more. Like it started with Alex Jones, and then the pendulum slowly kept swinging and was going further and further and further. Man, I hope that pendulum swings back and we get towards a place where there is more freedom and open flow of information. And guess what? The price you pay for that is there are going to be a lot of crazy people. But I'd rather have the crazy people out there and also have the truth tellers out there than to sort of ban the crazy people and anti-establishment truth tellers uh, as well. Because, of course, they're going to come after shows like this. Of course. If they go after Sky News Australia, of course they could come after a show like this. And we already think they have in terms of deranking us in the algorithm where our stuff doesn't spread to new people. It's just, it's sad to watch in real time the destruction of the free and open era of the internet. Like we're no longer in that era. We're transitioning out of that era to a more rigidly regulated and controlled internet. And people went to YouTube initially to get away from all the traditional corporate media garbage. Now it appears like they're just trying to force feed you the, the corporate media garbage and all the outlets that you originally came here for being buried and suppressed. So even though I'm sure that Sky News was spreading misinformation, you have to allow people to talk about this shit, man. And, you know, I think you can even also make a case that 
in the long run, it works out for the better because they need to be able to make these arguments and people need to be able to counter their arguments if they're saying incorrect shit. You know, so in the long run, how do you change people's minds but by engaging with their inaccurate beliefs? But what they're saying is just ban the inaccurate beliefs. And, you know, it's devastating. It's devastating. So whether it's Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or other social media outlets, we're going down a really bad path, man. Um, And it's amazing to me how many people in the media sort of cheered on and want that to be the case and want to go further down this path. I really don't think they would do this with CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, even though in theory they could because they say a lot of wrong stuff. I don't think they would. Sky News Australia maybe doesn't have the same kind of connections, even though they're a big broadcaster. But um, I wouldn't, I don't want to do any of this. They shouldn't do any of this. This truly is against the, the spirit of free speech and free expression. Even though it's not technically the First Amendment, it's against the spirit of that First Amendment. And we've seen it time and time again. They went after far-right accounts on Twitter, and then they immediately went after Antifa. They took down the Donald subreddit, then they immediately took down the Chapel Trap House one. It's going to keep going. It's going to get worse and worse, and be careful what you wish for. Okay. Next. So Tucker Carlson did a new special on Fox News about immigration, and it's, of course, the exact kind of special you would think Tucker would make. You know, the general idea behind it is like, immigrants are bad. Here's some stuff about how I think immigrants are bad. So uh, he went on a Fox News show to promote his new special, and him and Geraldo Rivera started sparring in a heated segment on it. Watch. Crisis continues to get worse. Months after Vice President Kamala Harris's visit, and the Vice President released her root Oops. causes migration strategy today. It focuses on things. Whoops. I picked the wrong one. My bad. Hold on. Here we go. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm, a patri- I'm as patriotic, I think, as anybody. It's, but it's not Guatemala's fault. It's not El Salvador's fault. It's not, right? It's not Honduras's fault. And it's not even Mexico's fault. It's our fault. We did two things. One, we provide a massive incentive to people, for people to come here by providing the most generous welfare benefits in the world to the people who come illegally. And two, by opening the borders and summoning them. So to whip around and blame climate change or the government of Honduras or corruption as if we can... As if we can fix that. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine the hubris required to say, okay, all we need to do is change 300 years <laughs> of custom in a country whose language we don't speak, and we'll have it fixed. I mean, like, you truly are a moron if you say something like that. I mean, honestly. No, it's our fault. It's our welfare benefits and our open borders. That's simple. Geraldo. Hey, Tuck, uh, you know, it's a uh, subject near and dear to my heart. Uh, I am glad that you didn't lead with uh, the migrants bringing COVID in, as as too many reports that I've seen in recent days do. 
uh, right. because those overblown health fears are the uh, the xenophobic reaction to immigrants since the You're Irish in the 19th century. Oh, the, the, uh, oh, the Chinese in the 1880s, the Italians right. uh, in the turn of the century, yeah, okay. the Jews from Eastern Europe. Yeah, right. right. Oh, oh, they were all bringing smallpox. Right. They were all bringing uh, tuberculosis. You know, Arnaldo, we live in a country where we are being forced to take a vaccine that some people, newsflash, don't want to take, that Americans can be arrested for not wearing a mask because COVID is so serious, but foreign nationals break our laws carrying COVID and somehow they're exempt from the requirements that we live under? That's not xenophobia. That's equal application of the law, and it's not happening now. And it's an appalling double standard that every American, including you, should be mad about. Well, I'm mad about exaggeration and hype. What? It's a policy. They are not forcing. Look, if you work in the federal government, you have to get the vaccine. But if you break our laws as an illegal alien, you don't. Why don't you explain why that's a good idea to me? Well, I, I don't think the segment's about me. I would be glad to, but it's I think I would rather refer to, to uh, let, uh, Jesse be the subject. Now. Okay. And, uh, and Greg's going to ask you about fish. Arola, this is what we've been. <laughs> Tucker, this is what we've been doing with all week with Arola. So I'm just. My apologies. Guys are smug, condescending pricks. So um, I'll answer Tucker's question. He's basically saying, well, why shouldn't we have a vaccine mandate for immigrants? Because if we were to do that, you would turn around and say, American taxpayer money going to give medical treatment to the immigrants. Another way in which they're parasites and leeches getting welfare from hardworking American taxpayers. So damned if you do, damned if you don't. You don't have a vaccine mandate for legal and illegal immigrants coming into this country, and he argues, dirty, disgusting immigrants bringing disease. You do have the vaccine mandate for it, and it's leeching off of our healthcare system and, and getting freebies. So there is no winning. Either way, Tucker's going to go after the immigrants, whether it's for being dirty immigrants or it's for being lazy, freeloading moochers. So there's your answer, Tucker, no matter what you're going to go after them. Anyway, so uh, that point aside, um, he says a lot of things there that triggered the fuck out of me because they're just not true. So he says, the reason why we have people coming into this country um, and we have this, what they view as a crisis is, quote, we are giving them a massive incentive with the most generous welfare benefits in the world. What? What are you talking about? Most generous welfare? We're not even close to the most generous welfare benefits in the world. So, let me give you the facts, something that Tucker Carlson wouldn't like. Undocumented immigrants, including DACA holders, the DREAMers, are ineligible to receive most federal public benefits, including means-tested benefits such as Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, that's food stamps, regular Medicaid, Supplemental Security Income, and Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, that's welfare. They're not allowed to get welfare. Undocumented immigrants are ineligible for health care subsidies under the Affordable Care Act and are prohibited from purchasing unsubsidized health coverage on the ACA exchanges. So they can't even use Obamacare or the exchanges, even if it's unsubsidized. Yeah, real, real generous welfare benefits they're getting. They're literally banned from actual welfare. Um, even when it comes to legal immigrants, only those with lawful permanent resident status are allowed to get it. And even that is after five years as a legal resident. So it's not just that 
illegal immigrants don't get anything. Even legal immigrants don't get a lot because you have to be here for at least five years. And you have to have um, lawful permanent resident status. And then according to the Institution on Taxation and Economic Policy, undocumented immigrants contribute an estimated $11.74 billion to state and local economies each year. They pay more in taxes than they actually get in services. So in other words, the whole picture that he's trying to paint is exactly backwards. And these, aren't, this, these things aren't open to negotiation or debate. These are the facts. What I just gave you are the facts. So he's just doing standard immigrant fear-mongering. That's what that is. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. So when he says it, they have a massive incentive with the most generous welfare benefits in the world, they don't get almost anything. The only things they get are, like, if they go to the emergency room and they have to get care, they get care. Because anybody who goes to the emergency room gets care. Um, and the kids are allowed to be enrolled into public schools. But that's it. That's it. That's pretty much it. That's all they get. Everything else I laid out for you in great detail here. And then the other thing is, Tucker casually says, oh, we have open borders. Open borders, my ass cheeks. We don't have open borders. What are you talking about? He's making it seem like the Democrats got in power, and on day one they were like, and we declare you shall open the border. Biden is very similar to Trump with his border policies. So what are you talking about? And Biden and Obama deported more people than any administration ever. Obama and Biden did that. Does Tucker point that out? Does Tucker say, hey, that's right in line with my philosophy, so I give them credit? No, he doesn't, because he's a hack. He's a partisan hack. And then he even, like, makes fun of the idea that, hey, perhaps the corruption in some of these places is to blame. I'll go further. Not only is it the corruption in a lot of these places, but it's the drug war. We're waging the drug war. If we stop the drug war, legalize tax and regulate weed, guess what? That would make it so, um, you know, the drug cartels are less powerful, which means that uh, they're not doing as many terrible things in their respective countries where they are, and that means you wouldn't have as many people fleeing those countries. So it's poverty, it's violence that's going on, it's, that's associated with the drug war. Legalize tax and regulate it and put the cartels out of business, which would help the people in these countries. Also, stop the shitty trade policies that are destroying these countries, and also stop the imperialism where the U.S. meddles in these countries all the time and they do regime change, and we control it at the behest of our corporations. That's what we need to do, and of course that would help. We do need to address the root problems so people want to stay in their own countries. And guess what? If you do address the root problems, the overwhelming majority would want to stay in their own country. So, again, this is just classic, classic Tucker Carlson. Here's, here's the bottom line, guys. This is the oldest trick in the book. The oldest trick in the book is get people who are working class whites to blame working class black and brown people for their problems, as if somehow the working class black and brown people are hopping the line, are getting more benefit and benefits and supports, support from the federal government um, than the white families are, and breed resentment by making poor working class people point the finger at each other and blame each other as the rich run out the back door with all the money. And so this is what he's doing. It's classic scapegoating. This serves nobody but the ruling class and the elite. And the real narrative that you need to understand is black people, brown people, white people, all working class people, you have more in common than not. And as soon as you guys realize that it's the corporations, the billionaires, and the wealthy who are rigging the system and exploiting you and screwing you, as soon as you guys realize that and you band together, that's when we'll get real change in this country. Um, But instead... Tucker's not laying out that argument. Tucker's not uh, making it clear we have a lot in common with our immigrant brothers and sisters. What he's doing is scapegoating them and blaming them for the problem of working class whites. 
and breeding resentment. And so instead of putting the anger where it should be, at the corporations and the billionaires and the people who've rigged the system in their favor and screwed you, he's making it so that working-class white people are more angry at people who are even poorer and even worse off, immigrants, black and brown people. And so his whole fake populist tap dance is total bullshit because he's completely misleading his audience into thinking that this is the biggest problem facing them, and it's not even close to the biggest problem facing them. Listen, on the issue overall, I'm a moderate. I've told you guys a thousand times. I think it's perfectly legitimate for a country to have a border, and I think it's perfectly legitimate to enforce those border laws. You should be humanitarian, um, and you should follow and abide by human rights, but you absolutely can have a process in place, and you absolutely uh, can, can be reasonable in the steps one would need to take in order to get in here. So I'm a moderate on the issue, but the fact of the matter is this. He's making it out to seem like it's a huge problem and immigrants are to blame for everything going wrong in these people's lives, and it's simply not true. And it's a giant diversion. It's scapegoating. It's doing the bidding of the ruling class, and it's disgusting, and I think that's clear. Okay. All right, final story of the day, y'all. Final story of the day. So Matt Damon is in some hot water. Um, he is facing backlash after revealing in an interview that he only stopped using the F slur for homosexual months ago after his daughter taught him how that word is dangerous. So the article is in ABC that I read on this. Um, I'll just give you a little bit of what they say here. Matt Damon is facing backlash after revealing in an interview that he only stopped using the F slur for homosexual months ago after his daughter taught him how that word is dangerous. In an interview with the Sunday Times, Damon said, the word that my daughter calls the F-slur for a homosexual was commonly used when I was a kid with a different application. I made a joke months ago and got a treatise, 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 how do I not know how to say that word, from my daughter. She left the table. I said, come on, that's a joke. I say it in the movie Stuck on You. She went to her room and wrote a very long, beautiful treatise, treatise on how that word is dangerous. I said, I retire the F-slur. I understood. Damon has three school-aged daughters and a stepdaughter in her early 20s. Damon, who's 50 years old, told the anecdote as part of a wider conversation about changes in modern masculinity, according to the article, which spends the majority of its word count lamenting the dissolution of the movie's going public's obsession with leading men in Hollywood. 20 years ago, the best way I can put it is that the journalists listened to the music more than the lyrics of an interview. Now your lyrics are getting parsed to pull them out of context and get the best headline possible. Damon is quoted as saying before his slur story, everyone needs clicks, but it didn't really matter what I said because it didn't make the news. But maybe the shift is a good thing, so I'll shut the fuck up more. So um, this is interesting because Matt Damon is basically saying, hey, I'm sort of on board for wokeness and policing language to make people better. That's kind of the argument that he's making. And he's getting attacked simply because in the retelling of the story, 
he brought up that he used the F slur for homosexual. I think it's kind of, it's actually a really interesting story in the sense that it highlights why a lot of people would never change on this stuff. Because they feel like, hey, even if I do, I'm going to get attacked anyway, so why would I change? I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing culturally for a long time. And Matt Damon is not wrong because even though I'm 33 and he's 50, my generation, at least where I grew up, it was the same thing. Like, we, people would say gay to mean, like, like I don't want to do that. Like, or they, they would use it in a negative connotation to be like, I want nothing to do with this thing. But nobody ever thought of it like we were saying, we are against homosexual people. Like, I've been for gay marriage for as long as I can remember my entire life, but I also casually would use that word gay for to have a negative connotation um i'd use the word that he's saying he used when talking to friends and and joking around again while fully believing in equality and fully believing in gay marriage um it's sort of like that south park episode where they have these bikers and they i think do they use the word what word do they use for that do they say gay in that one, or is it a different word? Well, either way, it doesn't matter. The point of the episode is these things could have totally different meanings, even though it's the same word. And that's how, we've, that's how we viewed it completely. And his point is, even though that's true, I sort of see where they're coming from, and so I'm going to stop using it because there are going to be people who don't understand that context and then are going to take it the wrong way and so I think my daughter's right, and I shouldn't use it anymore. And he admits that he doesn't use it anymore now, but people are still coming after him for retelling the story and having been part of that culture. And if, if you can't even say, I've now changed and I agree, then you're incentivizing people not to change and not agree. So it is sort of like a classic definition of the excesses of the woke culture where they don't even take yes for an answer. And I feel like that's a huge problem in our politics, whether it's on this or on other issues, a lot of people just don't want to take yes for an answer. And it's like, if you're not even going to accept it when people say yes, you're never going to get, you're never going to be able to build a winning coalition. You're never going to be able to uh, be agreeable. You're never going to be able to work on a broader project. If the whole point is just in-group virtue signaling about how you're the purist, well, you're not going to get very far now, are you? And um, that's what's happening with this. So I'm at, funny enough, I'm actually exactly where Matt Damon is on this. You know, because the words I used growing up, I mean, the way we talked. And, I mean, even now I I still speak in a rather politically incorrect way that a lot of people don't like, doesn't vibe with them. Um, But it's not, I don't say this stuff anymore. But for a really long time I did. And we just viewed it as par for the course and the way it was. And the context was what the context was. But ultimately I do think he's sort of right. So, and, and this is what happens with language. Language over time evolves. Um, language over time, many would argue it just we just improve overall and we become more inclusive. But there's always going to be words to describe somebody being an outcast or somebody being, uh, you know, weird. And it's possible that no matter what those words are that we come up with, it's going to be those words will eventually be pushed out of style and out of fashion, and new ones will replace it. You're never going to be able to police the concepts overall, 
Um, but it is par for the course now that the opposite happens and that the evolutional language will march on. So Matt Damon, I'm actually exactly where he is, and I do find it sort of supremely ironic that um, they're proving the point about the excesses of woke culture where he can't even say, well, I now agree with you. So anyway, all right, that's that, guys. I love you all very much. Everybody have a great rest of the day, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.